Tune in weekly and listen to the Collateral Damage Podcast, where Michael Wilson and Maureen Kavanaugh host a variety of special guests to discuss topics and available services that will help you learn about the impact that substance use has on our lives, our families, and on our communities nationwide. Episodes and listening information can be found at www.cdpodcast.com. You can also search for Collateral Damage Podcast on your favorite listening platforms or watch previous and future episodes on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe and share. We'd like to thank Sunrise Detox for sponsoring this episode of Collateral Damage. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Collateral Damage. My name is Mike Wilson. I'm here with my amazing co-host. Maureen Kavanaugh. Yes. Coming to you live from her house, me coming to you live from my house. And we have a special guest today, Rob DeMeo, who is a person in recovery as well as the outreach coordinator at Sunrise Detox. Thanks for joining us today, Rob. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, we're happy to hear. We're happy to have you on today. And and you know, for me, uh, I'm a person in recovery, and I work in the industry. And you know, I know uh, that I have a lot of conflicting uh, uh, points of view between like my recovery and the industry as it changes and evolves. And I know that. I've had to evolve. I've had to change and I've had to adjust. I don't want to say my belief system, but my uh, how open I am uh, in this new uh, era of, you know, the overdose epidemic and fentanyl and suboxone and methadone and MAT. And, you know, I know that uh, uh, prior to the show, we were talking about your um, your involvement in that. And I, I want to get to that a little later in the episode, you know, with Mara and stuff like that, because that piggybacks on a previous episode that we had with a person in recovery that's using uh, Suboxone and he's very vocal about it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about the Mara. But before we get to that, I'd love our listeners to hear a little bit about uh, uh, where you come from, uh, why you do what you do, uh, and maybe where the passion comes from for you to be in this industry. Oh, yeah, no, like, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I grew up in Somerville, you know, um, I came from a single family household. My mom was um, severely mentally ill with, uh, she had bipolar, a severe case of bipolar. And my father was a raging alcoholic who would, you know, um, beat me and my mom um, on a regular basis. We, um, we were very tight knit. It was just me and my mom at one point and she did everything she could to keep food on the table and a roof over my head. Um, unfortunately, like that roof that was over my head, the landlord was um, one of those creepy guys that liked to touch me when I was a kid. And like, so like I was predisposed to this disease, like from the beginning. And like, I had feelings inside me that like were different from the kids my age. And I could never relate or identify with the kids my age growing up. So like I, I gravitated towards an older crowd and like that older crowd was doing things that like a kid my age shouldn't have been doing. Angel dust, cocaine, ecstasy, weed, alcohol, things like that. And um, when I put that first one in me, that first one you know, kind of took me. And um, I didn't feel those feelings anymore. I, I, I was like feeling to fit in with this older crowd and do the things that they were doing. And once I realized the things and the behaviors that they were doing and the drugs and the alcohol could really take me outside of me, um, I took that and ran with it for a long time. And for me, it was, um, you know, it was recreational for a long time before I got that bite of addiction, I would say. Um, drugs were always a part of my life. Um, self-seeking, egotistical, self-centeredness was always a big part of my life, even as a kid. Um, you know, as time went on, um, I could put it down, pick it up. I could build a little bit of a lifestyle for myself, decent little life. I'd always tear it down though. Um, at some point or another drugs would always come back into play. Um, I would push every, um, personal relationship away from me, family members, girlfriends, my children. Um, and that's kind of what I did for, in order for me to get high. And then at some point in 2010, I, um, I swerved away from a drunk driver on 93 and uh, I flipped my truck and my car went three lanes across the highway and I was smoking a cigarette and my left hand was out the window. That car accident kind of took my left hand, but the prescription pad the doctor was writing kind of took my life. Now, this was back in a time where um, there were words you just didn't hear. There were, there were words I didn't hear in school, um, detox, holding, halfway house, AA, NA, MAT. These words were non-existent. They weren't part of my vocabulary. So when it came time for the doctor to take me off this medication, I was kind of up shit's creek without a paddle in a sense. Um, I had no way to turn. And, um, you know, there were some people that, you know, from my area that were doing this, this recovery thing that I would, I would look and say they're doing the recovery thing. They were working in treatment and they were breaking silence and talking about some of the neighborhood kids like me 
that were going through the same things, you know, that they went through and how they got help. And I, I actually reached out to Matt Ganim and um, Matt got me my first bed in detox and showed me how to get there. That was like seven years ago. And um, from there, it was just, it, it, it was, you know, I can tell you how I got high. I ripped and ran, you know, to the darkest edges of the city of Boston. And, um, but like, it was really like my process in detox, my process in learning how this whole treatment thing worked, the continuum of care. It was the people that I met working in the detoxes that um, really paid a big impact in, in my own personal recovery. Cause I was never the kid that could stay in a detox. I was never the kid that make it to a holding. I'd be in there two or three times. I mean, I must've been a Dimmick 15 times. Wow. Um, you know, but there was always people that worked in the detoxes, the recovery specialists or the caseworkers that like were in recovery themselves. And they'd always say something. And each time I was in there, like I'd take a little bit of that information with me as I chase a woman out the detox or I, you know, chase my disease out the detox for another bag. But like, it was that piece of information that, that stuck with me, that got me through the doors, you know, thank God again. And then at some point, you know, um, I was bad at beating and broken. I was, um, I was done. My pain was great enough. I walked in there and I'll never forget sitting at the intake at the Dimmick Detox and like taking my shoes off and like my socks were formed to my feet and the smell. Mm. And um, it's still that, that gratitude piece. Like I remember it like it was yesterday and uh, I just had nothing left in me. And like at that point, like all those little mustard seeds that all these people that I had met through, you know, these few years of going in and out of all the detoxes in Massachusetts and all these meetings that these places would make me go to, like it all kind of paints the bigger picture and I kind of knew what I needed to do. And um, from there it started, you know, and it was, um, you know, the outreach that really did it for me. I got, you know, through the detox part into a halfway house and um, I kind of, you know, realized early on in this process, if I wanted to be successful at this, I needed to be around successful people. So those are the people that I gravitated towards this time. Those are the people that I, I, I kind of identified and related with and, and kind of made sure they were in my team. And it started with the, the recovery events and going out and, you know, the, the kickball games, the all the events that we have here in Massachusetts played a huge part in my recovery. The advocates like Maureen, um, you know, things like that. And that's kind of, you know, at some point, you know, I graduated that halfway house and I started working for that same detox that I laid my head down and prayed for the things that I have today. Um, and then it just kind of went there and I landed over at sunrise. You know, the, uh, you made a point just a moment ago about how, you know, when you were in, in and out of those detoxes, it was the, it was the uh, the recovery staff, the the case management, the people that you met along the way, who you knew were also in recovery that would say things that would stick, and you know I identify with that just because my own recovery was built on the message from other people, you know the messages of hope, or the inspirational statements, or um, you know the advice or direction, or more importantly, just that they were living a life that I wanted, uh, free from something I was burdened with you know, and so like meeting them or talking to them, it, uh, it did, it planted those seeds, like you said, those little mustard seeds along the way that, I mean, I learned everything I needed to know about recovery at my first detox. They told me everything I would need to know. And I was like, yeah, no, I think I'm good. And, you know, I had to try all my own ways before I finally accepted it. But all I was hearing was the same thing over and over again. I just heard it from different people that were in recovery. And every now and then some of it stuck and some of it stuck and some of it stuck and it all built like you were saying, and, uh, you know, it's inspiring to hear that you decided to get into this because, you know, I, I said this on a previous podcast with somebody else where, you know, I talked about the price we pay for the things we got to enjoy while we were using. And, you know, it's kind of how I look at my life now is that the work I do is the price I'm paying for the stuff that I enjoyed while I was out there using. And because I went through it, survived, and I have something to give back, I owe it. Um, and that's what I'm out here paying and I'm trying to pay it because I had a lot of fun. You know what I mean? It wasn't all pain, but I'm trying to pay it back. And, uh, you know, I feel like that's what we all do. And thank God for people like that. Thank God for people like you, because if it wasn't for that, these new folks out there struggling, wouldn't hear that same message you got to hear. No, I, th I think that's an important message for parents to hear too, because I mm. think that a lot of times parents, they'll send their child to a detox or to a, to a program once or twice or three times and um 
and think that every time it doesn't work, it's all for nothing. But that's not true. It, it, this all builds and builds and builds. And hopefully, like you said, little mustard seeds. I like the way you said that, that it all, it, at the end of the day, there comes a point where they're ready and all those experiences come together to, to make a strong recovery. Right. It was huge for me. And I mean, I agree, Mike. I paid a you know, high price for a shitty quality of life for years. And um, if you have asked me, you know, what I wanted, you know, like recovery to me is evolution. You know what I mean? Because like when I was 30 days clean, if you ever asked me if this is what I was going to be doing with my life, I would have told you I wanted to be a plumber. You know what I mean? Just, <laughs> just working in the field thing wasn't something I wanted to do. I just kind of fell into it. But um, like Maureen, the mom thing, you know, it, it really comes down to it. My mother was same thing, discouraged. Every time I'd walk out of a detox, oh, they couldn't help you. Or I'd, you know, get there and get kicked out for something. And my mom would, you know, oh, that place didn't work for you. And it wasn't the place that was that wasn't working. It was me. You know what right. I mean? Like, it, you know, at this point, I don't think, you know, when I really, really think back, I don't think it mattered, you know what I mean, where I actually was. If I wasn't ready, it wasn't going to work. It wasn't the facility. It wasn't how nice it was. I mean, I went to Dimmick, you know, the old Dimmick. Then that was my, I was so sick. That was my first call every time. Um, but like, it, it really didn't matter the, the, the facility or what was going on. It was whether or not I was ready or not. Well, and, it's like uh, school. I mean, treatment is an opportunity to learn just like school is, you know what I mean? You can go to school and two kids can go to the same college with different interests and one can come out with a degree. Another one can come out with a criminal record and a habit, you know, and right. same could be said for treatment and they're just opportunities. And I guess that's what, you know, a lot of families don't really understand about the treatment industry is that, you know, there is no treatment program that can make someone get well. It's just a great opportunity for someone to hear a message from someone else that works there or, you know, another resident or a staff member. Uh, and hopefully, like Maureen was just saying, kind of build. Um, I, I don't know many people that went to one program and stopped. Uh, and and that, that may be discouraging for a listener right now that they might be hanging on to the hope that they're going to get their loved one into treatment and it's going to be the uh, it's going to be the one. And it could be. I don't want to take that away. I just don't know a lot of people. I think more people, you know, like us, Rob, who, you know, we're living that way of life, not just physically dependent on substances, but like live that lifestyle. You know, we're talking about a lot more than time in a program to get off of drugs. We're talking about time to accept that we need to create a new life and then take the time to develop that new way of life and then accept that new way of life as a new normal and then practice it on a regular basis so we don't go back. That's huge. It, it took me years to relearn everything my brain was taught in active addiction. Yeah. What I thought was normal was, was pretty wrong. Yeah. When I came off the street was really, really wrong. Yeah. And like, that's where like separating me from my drug of choice for, you know, as much time as I possibly could, you know, go into that halfway house, learning how to brush my teeth, wash my hands again. That's the things that I needed to relearn. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because like those, those didn't exist for me. I'd rip and run, wouldn't shower for weeks on end. I wouldn't, the toothbrush, I, I didn't even have one. You know, and one. like really learning how to live um, productively for myself um and how to treat others too right because like everybody was a hostage everybody was a victim right. like my mom you know she was my biggest fan but at the same time she was my biggest hostage you know and um it, it's it's huge relearning everything um so what we need to do to you know make it through another day so maureen as a as a mom listening um you know i mean you you're obviously in the industry too so you're aware but like as a mom listening like what do you hear do you hear do you hear hope that in time something like this could could work out? Do you hear like hopelessness that it's going to take a million times for my loved one to get this right? Or do you hear like they have to be ready for it to work? Because that's one I hear all the time. And that one kind of bothers me. Yeah, it bothers me too. Um, that, you know, they have to be ready before they go into treatment, which is almost an impossibility, right? Um, that, you know, parents and family members are out here waiting for their loved one to come over and be like, hey, guys, I thought about it this life isn't working for me. I've decided I'm ready to get well. And they're waiting for that conversation before they get them into treatment. You know? Or the rock bottom thing. We have to, I mean, sure. the rock, rock bottom drives me crazy yeah. because have I, you lost my, enough? <laughs> well, and I mean, my, my idea of rock bottom is dead because, and my daughter got there 13 times that brought her to the hospital. God only knows how many times she overdosed beyond that, but she, she died 13 times or more 
And that wasn't enough. So what's lower than that? You know what I mean? So I always say rock bottom always has a basement because, um, so don't wait for that. We I can't wait for that. And she went to over, um, we figure about 40 different places, entries into some form of treatment. So between Rob and my daughters throwing the whole, skewing the whole, uh, the curve yeah. <laughs> that hopefully somebody doesn't have to do it that many times. But um, because there are people, I think the average is eight. And, you know, if the average is eight and somebody does 40 and somebody does 20, then it's probably, you know, maybe in general, it's probably a couple of times. Sometimes maybe they're we're lucky and it's it's once and done. But um, I think whatever it is, I mean, you don't give up, you know, you just right. keep you just keep waiting for that that click. And I have used to say when my daughter was going through this, I and I say it to other people now, it it happens. And sometimes it happens slowly for people. But I see all, so many times that all of a sudden, something just changes. Right. But we've all seen that, right? You see that with other things, too. It's not just addiction. Like sometimes it's even a bad relationship. Mm-hmm. And a million things happen. And then all of a sudden, something happens, and it may not even be that big something, but th- you're done. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think, something like that happens very often doesn't have to be hitting rock bottom it doesn't have to be you know and then then all that they I feel I watched all that she learned came and supported that decision that she was done that she could really do it and it didn't happen for a long time and I really wish that she hadn't had to go through all that she did to get to that point but there's no giving up every time somebody is still trying you get hopeful all over again because you need to, because that could be the time that, it, that, you know, that they put it behind them. But that thing you just said right there, I want to highlight that. I wish she didn't have to go through all of that to get it first, you know? And I think that's what, that's what I find motivates a lot of parents and families to stay in it with them and keep nerfing the sharp edges so that their loved one doesn't have to experience those difficulties. But, you know, I learned about in my recovery, the gift of desperation, right? And, the gift can't necessarily be given. It has to be earned, uh, but it is the gift of desperation. And so I don't look at a rock bottom. I look at levels of desperation. You know, we all have different levels of desperation and, you know, you brought up your daughter's overdose uh, or multiple overdoses. And I mean, we see this all the time that, you know, parents like, well, they overdosed last night. So this should, this should be enough to get them to go to treatment. And, you know, I think that something that people don't realize about overdoses is that it didn't happen to the person that overdosed. It happened to everybody else. Absolutely. Their experience was they were high and then they weren't. And now they're in a hospital room angry. That was the entire experience, which is not a very significant life-changing experience. It's, it's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable and it's a little bit emotionally disruptive. But at the end of the day, the solution is still the same. This sucks. I need to get out of here and get high. Right. There's been no psychic change for the most part. Um, and, but there has been for everyone else. And so, you know, when families are trying to, uh, prevent their loved one from struggling too much and still get well, it's almost like they're fighting against themselves, right? They're trying to help and prevent this person from experiencing so much damage that they're making it easier for them to stay sick because it doesn't bother them as much. Their loved one, like if I'm using and my family's picking up the pieces, so I don't have bad credit. So that means I still got credit cards. And they're making sure I have a place to sleep because they don't want me to be homeless. Mm-hmm. Well, I have money and I don't, I'm not homeless. So things aren't that bad, you know? And so I haven't reached a level of desperation that requires my attention yet or requires me to change my whole way of life, right? And so it's, it's definitely a, a battle. And, and of course, we encourage families to never give up, but we definitely encourage them to change their behavior. And Rob, did, your, did your family begin to change their behavior prior to you getting help? Yeah, actually that's, uh, you know, I hit my rock bottom so hot I bounced twice and a lot of it came into like that gift of desperation really showed its face when my mom got plugged in with other moms mm-hmm. and my whole hustle was kind of pretty much blown up. And I remember um, my active addiction got so bad, my mother packed up and left. She went down to Bradington, Florida she just was like, yeah, this is enough. I'm leaving you the apartment. Here's some money. I've done all that I can. I'm going to start my life, my dream down in Bradenton by myself. Um, she had just left uh, a 15-year relationship. And she 
was just severing ties for her own mental health, for her own, um, for her own safety, pretty much. Um, she was attempting to get away from my hostage situation. She left me the apartment, everything, and within three months it was gone. And I remember being at self station, um, getting high in the bathroom and I gave her a call on a Friday afternoon and she picked up the phone and she says, I love you. She said to me, but I'm no longer picking up my phone throughout the week. She says, I will call you every Friday at 2 PM to make sure you're alive. And that's it. Um, I said, yeah, whatever you say, I need a hundred bucks from the Western union. You know what I mean? Mom, I'll pass a note to the bank. Can you send me money? So I don't have to. Yeah. No, like she hung up the phone and I'd call back. It took me about three days of calling and calling and calling until I was like, light bulb went up. Oh shit, she's really serious. Um, I looked at her Facebook. I started seeing mom support from different um, mm -hmm. addicts, moms and groups and stuff like that. Magnolia might've been one. Um, <laughs> but she really, she stuck to her guns. And that was one, that was one point that drove me because now like it was kind of an eye opener. The other one was, um, maybe three weeks after that on, um, I had missed some 2 PM phone calls. My mother didn't know whether I was alive or not, but she, she held her uh, boundaries and didn't call throughout the week. Um, I can't imagine now thinking back what that was like for her not to hear from me at 2 PM on a Friday and then having to go a whole nother week. Right. And, um, I called her up and I said, what are you doing? She says, well, I'm looking through life insurance policies. I said, well, you make sure you get a good one because when I got to bury you, I want a couple months. I want, I want a couple few dollars. She said, Rob, they're not for you. They're not for me. They're for you. Yeah. I said, wow. I said, that's where we're at today. And um, shortly after that, it's, you know, my, no one could deny me my pain, you know, and uh, that's when, you know, and there was a difference between these treatment centers that I'd go into too, because like I'd walk into some and, oh, you're back. And then I'd walk into another one and, oh, you're back. And I'd get a big hug. Yeah. yeah. I'm grateful. And, and that's kind of, you know, it's very solution based. And that's kind of what Sunrise does too. And I think that's why I align so well spiritually with my job today. Mm -hmm. But I love the way your mother said that. I mean, she told you what her boundaries were, but she also told you she loved you. Right. So you would never, and there was never any doubt in your mind that you were loved, but you just got, she was going to stop you from, she was going to control herself and not allow her, her actions to, um, about you to, to ruin the rest of her life, the parts that, you know, weren't yours. So, um, and I think that that's, that's what, you know, that's what parents can do. They can draw really strong boundaries, but you don't, you don't ever stop loving your child or make them feel unloved. And I think that, you know, we got to the point and that's why I talk about like the tough love and the rock bottom thing. I think that you can, you don't have to contribute to it, but you don't have to take that love away from, from your child because I mean, you signed up for that when they were born. You, you don't get to decide that you don't, you, you're not going to be mom anymore just because you don't like what they're doing. And I tell people all the time, you may have to learn to love someone who is not going to be the person you wanted them to be. They're still your child though. You don't, might not even need, you might not even be able to let them in your house. I couldn't let my daughter in my house. Every time she got, got there, she left with more stuff than she came in with. <laughs> It had to stop. And it's funny you say that because like after it did, you know, it did click and I got clean. Um, it took, I had, I'd never been to Florida. You know, at some point during my active addiction, my mother needed to have back surgery and she was down there alone. And she, she said, can you get clean? You know, my surgery dates in three months. Can you get clean so you can come down here and take care of me? I said, yeah, there's no drug dealers down there. I'm, I'm not coming down there. I'll end up stealing your pills. There's no reason for me to be down there. So she brought back that old boyfriend um, to come take care of her um which now i regret not going but at the same time once i got clean and i had stayed clean it took my mom a full year before a year and some change before i was invited to come down to florida and um that was the first week i spent with my mother um in seven years and i was financially on my feet i had the job i had everything going everything was great and i was able to do all kinds of cool stuff with my mom and one of the conversations I, I, I remember specifically when I went down there for that week and I actually got uh, to be clean with my mom and have a little bit of knowledge. And I've been doing this advocacy work for a little bit. And I sat down and I looked at my mom and I, and I told her, I want you to know that nothing that you did or didn't do led me to my disease of addiction. And it was like a weight came off her shoulders at that mm -hmm. point. We were on a different level of son and mom um, that we'd never been on before. You know what I mean? So many parents blame themselves. Right. You know, now, and 
Rob, can I ask you a question? What, what was your, what was your path to recovery? How did you go from the story that you're telling us now to where you are today? What, what, what path did you choose and how did that work out for you? A lot of it was trial and error through my time of detox. It was, you know, suboxone, methadone, things didn't work back to detox. Um, when I did get the chance, I could never make it through the holding or the CSS. So um, I got the chance to go from Dimmick to the John Flowers recovery home, um, a straight shot, no weight. When I got in there, I agreed to do the Vivitrol shot for 30 days. Um, so I had done that. I had no cravings and I made it through the first 30 days of my halfway house. I was kicked out you know, selling Neurontin, um, because I get a prescription. I think I should have everybody else prescription too. Right. Um, but I was allowed to come back within three days without having to go through the whole process again. And that's kind of where it all, um, really came into play, changing my behaviors and learning. And a lot of it came through narcotics anonymous for me. Um, it was more of the narcotics anonymous where it was shut up, sit down, listen, if we want to know how to get high, we'll ask you. Mm -hmm. um, and that is what I needed, um, because my best thinking always brought me back to the same places. Yeah. And I learned early on that not just in a fellowship, but in the recovery community as well, with the advocates, with the moms, with the interventionists, is that all the suggestions are free. The only one I'm going to pay for is the one that I don't take. Mm -hmm. And I took all of them. You know what I mean? And I tried to apply them. And I, I did what I was told to do. And I was told that if I did this long enough, things would start to make sense. And, you know, I would sit there and I would, why me, why me? Why was I touched when I was a kid? Why did my father beat the shit out of me? Why did my mom have to be mentally ill? Why did all these other things happen to me? And then at some point, like, I get why now. You know what I mean? And, and like, I have a purpose today. I'm not ripping and running purposeless, purposeless. I <laughs> You know what I mean? I have a purpose today. And um, like I said, I wanted to be a plumber. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it kind of worked. And then over my time working in treatment, I've seen um, how much, you know, MAT and different pathways to recovery are needed. I know that one size doesn't fit all. And um, it, it took me a long time, like you said in the beginning, to obtain that level of open-mindedness. Um, to listen, what keeps me clean have you hide before you leave the parking lot? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, and vice versa. And, you know, understanding that and, you know, I coming down to the quality of life that a person wants to live. I mean, I would see the same clients come through detox, you know, and leave on the third or leave on the fifth, you know what I mean? Or the first when checks would come in or EBT would be back and they'd continuously rotate and come in and come on. I was one of them, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And then at some point, I would see um, someone's aftercare plan would be uh, uh, an MAT plan. And I wouldn't see them the next month. I wouldn't see them the month after that. I'd go down to downtown and I'd grab a coffee and then they are working. You know, they're in a sober house. They're, you know, up doing work at an IOP. You know, things aren't perfect. But the, the quality of life has improved dramatically from where I met them. Mm. And like to see that as a blessing in itself, because if they had continued on the path that they were on coming in and coming in, it's just a matter of time before their card was pulled. Yeah. So I fully believe that, you know, what doesn't work for me um, won't work for someone else. We hope that you're enjoying this episode of Collateral Damage. Now, please take a moment to recognize our sponsors. I hit rock bottom so hard that I bounced twice. My disease had me battered, beaten and broken. I used to live and live to use. Nothing mattered to me. And it wasn't until I entered a detox that I had, you know, trained clinical professionals that were able to help combat my disease of addiction. At Sunrise, we understand the courage it takes to look in the mirror and go, I just can't do this anymore. Give Sunrise a call. If you're even thinking about it, your recovery has already started. We'd like to thank Sunrise Detox for sponsoring this episode of Collateral Damage. And now back to our episode. You know, the... Uh... I went through the, uh, the steps ultimately that was, that was what got me to where I am today. And, you know, in the, in the place that I'm at, but my journey started with Suboxone, uh, with my working with my doctor. Um, and I was on Suboxone for over two years and I actually started this company while I was on Suboxone. I was able to stabilize it. Like you said, quality of life. I mean, my quality of life prior to that was so up and down and messed up 
And I'm not going to say that I use Suboxone correctly the whole time because I have 12 years instead of 10 years, but I got 10 years. And, you know, those two years were, you know, there was some alcohol mixed in there early on in the beginning because I was like, oh, I'm, I'm sober. And, you know, and, and then there was, uh, you know, kind of mismanaging the medication. But eventually I stabilized and I was able to do a lot of good. And um, it was about quality of life, but I wanted another layer on that. I wanted another layer to be, you know, for me personally, I just wanted to be free of the need to take something every day to be okay, whether it was prescribed or not. I just didn't like that burden on me. And uh, so I had to fight through it. My doctor wasn't a big fan of my plans. And uh, so I had to fight my way into detox, fight my way off Suboxone, you know, beg my way into a sponsor and, uh, you know, sit down and have a really, you know, uh, crawling skin, clammy skin conversation with my, my mandate about my feelings and, you know, how he was going to help me get over them. And it was, it sucked, but, you know, I think it was, uh, it was the path I needed to go down. And, and, you know, I, I agree with you, this, you know, gaining an open mind to this is about understanding that my version of quality of life is maybe different than yours or your family's. And, you know, that, Although what I want for you is to be free, you may not be able to obtain that right now, right? What I want for you is to be free from that obsessive desire to drink, to do drugs, the need to take something every day, but you might not be able to sustain that right now. You might need to be able to put some other, you might need to put some other things in place mm -hmm. first before you can build that foundation. Like, I don't know if you guys know about home building, but I built foundations for years. I had a company, so this metaphor works for me, but you know, everybody thinks the foundation is the base. It's not, there's a footing. And a footing is the very first thing that gets built. But even before that, a hole gets dug and the dirt gets pounded and everything gets stabilized underneath. And so, you know, we may be looking at recovery as the foundation, but there might need to be other things in place first before you can build recovery on that. And that's what it was for me. And that's what helped me, you know, when I kind of did an autopsy on my process, I was able to go back and realize that there were other pieces that I needed to put in place before I was ready to sit down and get honest with myself before I was ready to sit down. And I needed the chaos to slow down in my life. Like I had started a, an addiction machine uh, early on that was just running. It was running. It was on full speed, like just running all the time. And even when I went into treatment, it was just running. And then as soon as I came out, I was like, oh, where do I fit into this machine? Bam, right back where I was. And so until that slowed down and stopped, there was no hope of me slowing down and grabbing onto a big process like the 12 steps of recovery and like doing writing and internal investigations to figure out like what kind of person I am and learning how to sit with myself and be honest. Those weren't even possibilities. They were impossibilities based on the life I was leading. So, you know, I, I struggled with it for a long, I'm gonna say like the first six or seven years I struggled with the concept, but, uh, you know, I, I get it. And, uh, I'm a big fan of whatever it takes to change your life and stop living what you were living before, whatever it takes. And, you know, you talk, you talk about sitting with yourself and I know that, um, you know, that, that that's not easy. That's not easy for anybody. And all the COVID were the reason why we're all in three different locations. I think that, um, it's caused a lot of people who were walking that fine line, just hanging on by their fingernails to sit with themselves for weeks at a time. And we're, I, I'm seeing a lot of relapses. Um, yeah. I don't know about you, Rob, what's I'm going on? You know? Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of relapse too. Actually, a lot of different relapses from people that actually had clean time, yeah. good amounts of clean time. I've seen a, uh, a lot of, what we're forgetting is that we're fighting a pandemic within a pandemic. You know, and um, like we're here working, we're still fighting, um, but like we're seeing these overdoses are going up and it's not really being talked about because there are other headlines right now and, and stuff like that. And Mike, you talk about laying the, the, the footing for the foundation. And for me, like this COVID-19 thing is like the second hardest thing I've ever gone through in my own recovery. Um, I am so grateful for the recovery community um, and the foundation, the footing that I had laid um, because like this whole process of recovery with COVID-19 and stuff hasn't been all cupcakes and roses and stuff like that. I can tell you that on, you know, um, what was it? Uh, April 13th of 2018, um, I got a call. Um, it was my uncle calling and he 
No, it was nine o'clock at night. And he's the, he's a priest. You know what I mean? So like, there's no reason for him to be calling me at nine o'clock at night. And I looked at the phone. I didn't want to answer because I already knew what the call was about. Mm. So I picked up the phone and, you know, it went one thing into another and it came down to your mother is dead. And like, I didn't expect to get that call that night. I didn't know how to perceive that call, but then it was followed by Barrick killed her. And at that point, my whole world kind of crumbled down. Um, that foundation is really what I, I hit <laughs> in a sense um, to get a call that my mother had been murdered by her boyfriend um, on his birthday kind of um, changed my whole perception of recovery and who I am as a person um, and forced me in a sense to sit with myself um, in a different way this time. Um, so that had happened. Basically, what in a nutshell, what had happened is, is this man, the guy that she had got away from to move to Florida to get away from me, um, because she brought him back during that back surgery that I couldn't go down to Florida to take care of her because I was too wrapped up in my own active addiction, had been down there for the past year or so, um, or some change. And on his birthday, she allowed him back because he got some um, sober time. He was an alcoholic. But on his birthday, he decided to pick up his drug of choice, alcohol. And um, my mother was done, had told him to leave. He picked up a barbell. He caved her head in, left her under a blanket in the carport of her home in Bradington and was arrested around the corner by the Bradington Manatee um, Sheriff's Department. Um, from, from there, it turned into um, isolation. It turned into depression. It turned into anger and rage and resentment. It turned into all these different components that you know, if I didn't have that foundation and that footing um, in recovery um, and a good idea, and I don't even want to say a good idea, but some sort of sense of self, um, I would never have been able to walk through that. I mean, my room looked like an episode of Law and Order because I'm trying to put the pieces together because like the worst part of all that was it took me from the time I got the, the call, my mother was murdered 18 months before I got any sort of precise, clear idea of what my mother went through that day and that wasn't until we went for trial um but like it's like a hamster wheel that addict brain going and going and going and going and as an addict i want to know why i want answers to these questions that like i i don't have control of right now right and um, that foundation really came in like maureen checking on me to make sure i'm okay you know a lot of the mom advocates and women with 30 40 years of clean time really came together to check on routinely um, and, and that's where that, that foundation is. I had made these relationships with other people that were there for me through this that I wouldn't have had if I didn't put that foundation together, that I would never have made it through, you know, and been able to go be my mother's voice and, you know, put my mother's murder away for a life sentence. Um, it, it's, it's not something easy to go through in recovery. It wasn't mm -hmm. something I planned on going through. And it was something that like the depression hit so bad, I didn't shower for weeks. You know, I was doing everything but picking up a needle and jamming it in my neck. Um, my character defects were overloaded. Um, fixing feelings with feelings. I'm shopping. I think that Christmas I had gone four or five thousand dollars to overcompensate for how I was feeling inside. Um, you know, it just it it was just fixing feelings with feelings, and there wasn't much um, back to basics. I would say there wasn't much application of any kind of fellowship until I realized that like I had to do it again. I had to raise my hand and I had to ask for help mm -hmm. and I had to pull myself out of this depression and I had to seek outside services, see a, a therapist, see a psychiatrist and get on um, an antidepressant so I could get out of bed. Um, my brain went back and forth with it. Can I take a medication as prescribed responsibly? Um, is this something my fellowship's gonna allow me to, to do? Um, and then there came that whole open-mindedness that what I've learned working in treatment that I'm going to do what I need to do to get better. And so I raised my hand, asked for help and got the help that I needed and made it through one of the hardest parts of my life with people like Maureen and, and many, many others. And um, I get why today, you know what I mean? Like I said, like that, that at some point it kind of all comes together and I, I get it today. Um, I can tell you with this COVID-19 and this, the, um, Social isolation, um, I seen for um, social interaction and um, acceptance from others. It's, it's kind of like, I need to be around people. I need to feel part of. And 
you know, when you leave me alone in a room with me, you're leaving me with the last person who tried to kill me. So it's hard. You know what I mean? Um, an addict left to his own devices and, you know, idle hands of the devil's playground. And like, my ideas aren't the best ones. You know what I mean? I've got all kinds of stuff coming from Amazon today because I'm just, <laughs> you know what I mean? it's, yeah. it's hard. But like with this COVID-19 and not being able to be as connected and plugged in with the people that I know care about me, that I care about them and be able to have those relationships that I've been working so hard on building has crippled me in a sense um, and has put me in a position where, you know what, I, I just, I got to take it a day at a time, sometimes a minute at a time, even with clean time and, you know, being able to work in treatment and extend my hand and help another one um this therapeutic value for me in that um and that that's kind of where i'm at with all the covid19 it's it's been a, it's been the second hottest thing i've gone through in recovery well, i'm incredibly proud of you because i know you to be somebody who's always there day or night always looking to you know help even if it's just talking to somebody not about getting them you know into treatment or into your treatment or whatever it is that people need i've seen you reach out over and over and over again looking for people and picking people up in odd places and and you're um, i'm really proud of how you handled this and so sorry that you had to spend that second anniversary and and mother's day isolated that must have been really hard that was difficult. Yeah, it was, um, it was weird because like I spent it isolated the first year because it all kind of happened April, you right. know what I mean? I remember and Mother's Day and yep. then my mother's birthday is June 8th. So I was kind of, it's kind of like a, a trifecta in, in the sense. And, um, you know, and then the day before my mother's one year anniversary, I lose one of my best friends, Michael Young out in Chicago, a recovery advocate. And like, the, it's just the 12th, the 13th, it's just been being here alone going through these being forced to feel the feelings it sucks you know recovery good news is you get your feelings back bad news is you get your feelings you know what i mean but like today like i'm okay like i can sit with myself you know i have a sponsor i can call i don't utilize them as much as i probably should but um you know there's just so many people to call there's so many people you can jump on zoom with there's gonna be a whole generation of people saying i got clean on zoom like that's wicked cool you know um I don't think it, I think it's just part of what's required for, you know, long-term abstinence and re or recovery, but I feel like it's a start. I feel like, you know, being able to sit here with you guys, you know, and kill an hour and a half, it's an hour and a half. I didn't think about getting high. Right. You know what I mean? It's an hour and a half. Somebody's going to watch not thinking about getting high. Mm -hmm. Like it, it works, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So now right are on. you, uh, um, I think we had talked earlier on in the episode about uh, Mara and some people may or may not know what that is, but uh, could you tell us a little bit about that, that support option? Cause I know that there's a lot of people out there that are utilizing zoom meetings for much more than just podcasting or reaching out to their individual support system. There's people that, like you said, are getting well on zoom. Um, and so how, how did that come about and what is that? So Mara is a medicated assistant recovery anonymous. It's a 12 step fellowship for anybody and everybody, whether they're on MAT or they're not on MAT. If um, it's an open, um, it's an open forum for non um, shame or non judgment um, to be able to share, not worry about the terminology you use, not have to worry about feeling ashamed because you woke up, you know, and we're chemically dependent on something that's actually saving your life in the long run. Um, what we did at Sunrise is we wanted to give back to the community and it's been something that we've been, you know, we've, we've invited Maureen up and, and trying to figure different ways how we can insert ourselves here and just really give back and be a resource to moms, to brothers, to sisters, to hospitals, to healthcare providers, to psychiatrists, therapists, anybody and everybody. And what we started in our Tom's River location in Jersey was this Mara meeting. There's very few, it's you know, it's very up and coming. Um, the Marmite is starting and started in Tom's River. And we saw um, a really good um, outcome from some of our former patients that have left our, um, our PHP. They'll return and they'll do the Zoom and they'll speak. And, mm -hmm. you know, we started opening it up with Zoom for other people and promoting it because there's not many Mara meetings in that area. And that um, option for a fellowship isn't really existent. Um, People started joining and, and the vibe is 
it's really welcoming um, in a sense. It's not, there are 12 steps and 12 traditions, but you know, and there is a preamble, but we really focus on strength, inspiration and hope. And we really push the idea of if like your ass is on fire, raise your hand and share. Um, it gives it a, a safe place where people feel safe. So what we did is I started that same meeting, same format on Zoom and with our PHP in the Millbury location here in Massachusetts. Actually, when I done with you guys, I'll be heading up to Millbury to you know, um, do that meeting tonight. And basically what it is, is we invite our PHP clients to sit in. You can't see them on camera because of HIPAA, but they're in the room. I invite a speaker to come in every week and hopefully we can get people to log in via Zoom to just kind of, you know, get that vibe and get some help in a non-shaming and non-judgmental atmosphere. And it's been, it's, we, we were seeing a lot of people. One of the coolest things is, is when we first started this in Jersey to be able to log in and see, I see the same people coming back, coming back, coming back. Mm -hmm. and, and that's big. And with the um, world crisis going on to have somewhere that you know you can go at 7.30 every Thursday, hop in and just listen to a message of, you know, we can't force anybody to hear a message they're not ready to hear. Um, and that's why I think it's so important for all these different outlets to be there because you don't know where you're going to hear the message you need to hear. You know, you may be going to AA or NA, but the message you actually need to hear is from a guy who does NA speaking in a Mara meeting, you know? Um, so that's kind of what we're doing with Mara, all the information. Awesome. Of, yeah. You know, as you were talking, I was just thinking, you know, because I, I shared my story about being on Suboxone for a long time that, you know, I was considering whether or not I would be willing to speak at a Mara meeting. And I immediately felt guilty that I was able to get off of it. And I wouldn't know what the right message to try to deliver is because I wouldn't want to try to inspire people to stop taking the medication. I wouldn't want them to feel bad because they're on it. So like, I'm wondering if maybe that's why there's, you know, a lot of people who have used it as a tool that aren't comfortable necessarily speaking about it is because they're, they're beyond it. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they're not talking about it as how they got well. They're talking about it as a stepping stone. And I wouldn't want to discourage somebody that wants to stay on it and think they have to get off of it to get better. But um, it would just be, it would be weird for me. I was just considering that. And I don't think I could do it. Not right now. I would love to have you on. I mean, just with anything, I think there's a, a beginning, a middle and an end. And especially mm -hmm. with MAT, mm -hmm. um, I feel like I wouldn't want to know what you did to come off it, but where you were mentally when you made the decision, this was the end for you. Right. You know, so I think that, being able for people to be able to relate and identify as to where you were at in your process when your light bulb went off and said, Hey, I need to come to an end to this. And then you sought out whatever medical attention you needed to, whether it be a detox or a taper with your suboxone provider, we're not here to give medical advice, yeah. but to know where you were mentally, what things were, you know, contributing to your, um, your decision to do that. Because mm -hmm. I, I mean, I feel like a lot of people, like what was my decision to come off the Vivitrol after 30 days and white knuckle it the way I needed to not, you know, white knuckle it. I think that there's not enough clarity as to like, where's our head really at. Right. And um, what's really pushing us to, to make the right decision on what's best for us. Mm -hmm. I got a question for both of you, for all of us, maybe just a, a topic, you know, since we're talking about this, uh, you know, the video connection that people are using right now, Zoom or whatever connection they're using to, to, to make it to these meetings. You know, there was, if I think back to when I was using uh, or when I was going to meetings, you know, there were only meetings available at certain times. I needed a ride to get there. Um, I had to maybe swallow my pride and go back into a room that I had relapsed from previously where people might ask me questions or, you know, even if they weren't, I just felt those feelings. Um, you know, my, my thoughts were that I, I might be less inclined to go to a meeting if I'd never been to one before because it's physical and people are going to challenge me or talk to me or ask me questions. Are you guys seeing that with this new platform, there are do you think there are more people going to meetings because of those factors? Like there are more people who are willing to show up at a first meeting because they can just turn their camera off and listen. Um, or that there are more people who are showing up at meetings because they don't have to get a ride. They don't have to find someone to take them there or pick them up that they can just do it from home. Like, I mean, I'm not on these meetings, so I don't know, but it sounds like you are Rob. And 
I know Maureen, you you are familiar with some of the Zoom meetings that are out there for parents and for individuals. Are you yeah. more people? Do you think? I, I mean, I think that yeah, I think so. I think that you know, especially with the parents, because you know, you have to remember we're in Massachusetts where there's a lot of support, but you go into others, other places and the meetings are few and far between for, for parents, especially, but for everybody, you've got to get, not only you need a ride, but you really need a ride. You know, you may have to go an hour to go to a meeting. So there's kind of no excuse for, uh, for not doing it. Now you can turn off your camera. You can turn off. You don't even have to say anything. You can just kind of lurk in the background if you want. And no one even knows you're there. So there's, there's really no excuse to not at least give it a try. And, um, that stops a lot of family members from going to meetings because they don't want to see people they know too. Mm -hmm. So that's, you don't have that anymore. So it's removed a lot of obstacles. You know, I still feel like there's nothing like sitting next to somebody or, you know, it's it's different. But I'm hoping that we don't see the end of this when we see the end of the whole COVID thing. I hope that we have a choice now that we never had before and that I don't know if we would have ever gotten because I don't think people would have transitioned onto these these Zoom meetings with, you know, as much if um, they had the choice of the regular in-person meetings. Yeah, I agree 100%. I can tell you that I can see some of my regular meetings that I attend. So for me, my it's routine. So every Monday night, I go to this meeting. Every Thursday night, I'm at this meeting. And, and I've been doing that for years, especially out here in Lynn. Um, I can tell you that the Monday meeting is getting more people in it than it ever did when we were you know, having uh, a meeting in the hall. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the Thursday night meeting. And the reach that we have now is phenomenal. That we can take somebody from California and bring them to Lynn, Massachusetts home group and spread a message that we wouldn't be able to hear, you know, unless he was here in town, which is huge too as well. And I think that it eliminates a lot of the social anxiety newcomers may have by jumping in or walking through the door of a meeting, worried about that uncomfortable hug they're going to get when they walk in or who's going to see me, who knows me. Um, I think it's great because I go into Zoom meetings. You guys don't even know if I have pants on right now or not. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. But at the same time, too, like I think about like where I used to get high on Mass Ave, um, my day would start out on Mass Ave and it would, you know, sometimes I'd be so battered and beaten and broken, I'd accidentally stumble into an NA meeting and get a cup of coffee and hear something that would want me to go back into treatment or that would push me in that direction. And that's not available for people right now. You can't just kind of stumble into a meeting um, while you're out there ripping and running. Yeah, you lose that safe space to get away from everything. Right. Yeah. And not yeah, everybody so- has a safe space to sit and do what we're doing and you know, join video pantsless and uh right. I got pants on today, guys. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I hope that there'll be some kind of combination of the two where it'll be like a meeting like you're doing at, at sunrise, but that it'll also be on Zoom so that we'll catch everybody. That's what yeah, I'm kind of gonna- hoping that this turns into eventually. We're going to keep doing that. Um, I feel too for what I do for, for work and um, being able to, it, it's really going to be incorporated in my everyday you know, life as far as you know, meeting with other um, treatment experts because I, I, I don't have to get in my car and drive 45 minutes for a meeting. This is phenomenal. You know? And um, it really will allow me to focus less on driving and helping more people. Um, I think that um, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Really, I think it will be incorporated one way or another. Yeah, I think so too. Well, that's my biggest hope is that all these new tools that we're developing and creating to try to accommodate more people, they don't fall to the wayside because, you know, I think that it would be too easy for everybody to go back to normal. Um, and, you know, I think that we might lose a lot of people who found that this was the only way they could do it or the only way they could find the courage to do it. And, uh, you know, I would hate to lose uh, those folks, as you said, who have found recovery in one form or another from their own addiction, from a loved one's addiction, uh, by utilizing these tools. And I'm really glad to hear, Rob, that you're taking on uh, the Mara group. It's, I know that that was it started about a year ago out in Pennsylvania and uh, just kind of, it's taken its time getting around, but you know, I find that uh, I get a little frustrated when folks recommend that someone on MAT go to an abstinence-based recovery program and then get mad at the abstinence-based group for still being an abstinence-based group. 
Um, and so, you know, there should be an alternative uh, and the abstinence-based group should have their space and Mara should have theirs. And I think that that's a question I've asked for years for every client of mine that's on Suboxone. I'm like, so what groups has it been recommended that you go to? And they're like AA or NA. And I said, well, don't they have Suboxone-specific groups at the clinic that you go to? Aren't there options for you to sit with other people on that medication? And the answer they've been giving is no. And we need to change that answer to yes, so that they can get the support that they need and not feel slighted sitting with other people who may not agree with their path or who are on a different path. Just not the right place for them. 100%. And, you know, before we even started this Mara meeting, I think the only one that was close to us was like an hour and 45 minutes down in like New Bedford or something like that. And, um, you know, we jumped on with the founder of Mara, you know, and I had a, you know, 45 minute conversation trying to wrap my head around some of the 12 steps and 12 positions that have been hammered in my head for the past, you know, four years, um, well, 10 years, I've been going to meetings forever, but um, it, it really does like being able to have that option and get people, you know, the right level of care that they need is, is huge. And uh, with Zoom and with people facilitating, there's, re- there's no reason why they're not getting it. Um, I love it. And that's just it. where we're at, you know? Well, I got a question for you. Actually, Maureen has a question for you that we ask everybody. And I want to give Maureen an opportunity to ask you that question. I'd love to hear your answer. So, Yeah, we always ask everybody um, if there was one thing that you could change. As to what? Well, for in general, like if there was a one thing that you see, one big gap you see, or something you could wave your magic wand and change something, what would it be? In this industry. Okay. Yeah, it is related. No, not yeah. Let's not get there because we could sit all day about all those other things. <laughs> I think for me, the biggest thing that I see that breaks my heart on a daily basis is the criteria that some places use to discharge and the criteria it takes to get back into treatment. I feel like there's a huge gap there as far as someone getting kicked out for something stupid in a CSS then having to go back to detox to start this process over and or having to go down to Albany Street every day to get back into a CSS. Right. I don't feel like in a lot of parts of the state, there are places like Paths doing amazing work like they're doing. And I find that um, as soon as someone's discharged from, you know, uh, the continuum of care, um, they kind of feel forced into having to use again to get back into treatment. And um, I know from my own experience, I've lost a lot of people that way. And I feel like if I can, you know, magic wand and fix something, it would be that gap right there where, you know, um, whether it be a three strike rule or something or a a lateral, you know, move to a different facility. um, I feel like that's the biggest gap that I struggle with. And my phone rings a lot is, you know, hey, so-and-so got kicked out for smoking in the bathroom. Um, they're on the street. Can we get them into a TSS? And yeah, no, there's really not much we can do without a biopsych social, a lot of paperwork following, some clean urines, and the process is difficult. And, um, you know, that's that's kind of where I stand. That's that's what I would like to change. That's a great answer. Can I, I, w- I want to make a comment on that because uh, I am a, uh, f- I'm a felon and I've done a bit of time. Okay. And uh, as a result, I would go to jail. And um, if I had symptoms of being a criminal, they never kicked me out. Crazy. Uh, Instead, they put me in seg. Uh, They separated me from everybody else for their safety or whatever, uh, and gave me kind of like a timeout. You know what I mean? And I look at the treatment industry. And I I know it's not supposed to be a punitive model. I'm just giving an example of a situation where I didn't get They didn't kick me out. They couldn't get rid of me because I was a convict. I was their responsibility, you know, and I think the, uh, the treatment industry has this, this mentality that if you're in treatment, you're supposed to behave as though you don't have the illness that you have. And if for some reason you behave like an addict, we're going to throw you out. And so if I just said that out loud and that sounded crazy, it's because that concept is absolutely insane and should not be how people are treated while they're in treatment. You know, if you take uh, into consideration the fact that addicts and alcoholics in general live a a lifestyle full of symptoms that once they get into treatment, those symptoms could get worse. They could come out in a variety of different ways that, you know, one solution to that might be that programs separate individuals. Because I I, I own a sober living uh, with my business partner here. And 
you know, when we have somebody that has a substance use related symptom, yes, we take that person into consideration. We try to get them the, the help at the next step that they need, but if they're not willing, then we have to take the rest of the facility into consideration. We don't have like a separate unit set right. up for that. Um, you know, and maybe that's one of the things that programs could take into consideration is that, you know, 80% of their clients are going to have symptoms related to being, you know, an addict or alcoholic that might be contradicting their rules or regulations and that they should find a way to accommodate that individual, maybe separate them from the group and give them focused attention instead of just saying, well, you behaved like an addict, so now you got to go. And, you know, obviously that's not a solution, but it's something to think about. And I love that you brought that question up because for far too long, it's just become an accepted normal that if you get kicked out, everybody knows you got to get high to get back in. And why you got kicked out could be as simple as I talked to a girl, I talked to a boy, I smoked a cigarette, I swore, I got mad, um, you know, I slammed a TV remote, all symptoms of being emotionally handicapped and stuck in an environment facing an addiction you don't want to face, feeling feelings you don't know how to feel, surrounded by people you probably don't like. And you had, you had a symptom and, and like, there's gotta be uh, a better way to deal with that. So thank you for bringing that up, man. I, yeah. I, I couldn't you're, agree more. You're on point. I'm, I'm not going to go out and buy my kids a dog and expect it to act like a bird. You know what I mean? It, <laughs> right. It, it's, Why won't um, the dog stop barking? Well, that's I mean, it's it. a dog. <laughs> that's, so there's that. Yeah. It, you know, it's, um, you know, and then I see too, it, it's like, you know, the AMAs, you know, I, I mean, they just, it's at this point, it's, you know, cattle's coming in, herding cattle, nobody's stopping an AMA. If a, if a kid wants to smoke a cigarette because he just had a stressful conversation with his mom, where's the, you know, sympathy and empathy and maybe get the kid out for a cigarette. So maybe this time works. Don't discharge him to the street where, you know, he's just going to be back in three to four days. You know, I was so sick. I canceled my mass health. Because, like, I had to wait 14 days if I AMA to get back into a facility. If I canceled my mass health, I could, you know, go in a DPH bed. Yeah. And not have to wait. Yeah. Like, that's how I was getting kicked out for all these behavior issues and stupid things that maybe if someone just took the time, you know what I mean? A, a little bit of time to pull that onion back and really figure out birds fly, fish, rim, Rob's going to use. Yep. I and mean, we know what I'm doing when I leave. Pull it back a little bit and see where, you know what I mean? The pieces fit. And, mm-hmm. I could have got clean a lot quicker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's good. It's good that we can go back and autopsy the situation, and in hindsight, we can tear it apart and figure out what to do. And you know, hopefully afraid... change it. What's that? And hopefully change it. Well, that's just it. I mean, all three of us are in the industry, and we all have, you know, our own role to play. And I think that when we have conversations like this, whether you know it's relevant to the listeners or not, I mean, we come up with ideas, and you know, these ideas get. Uh, implemented at different programs, uh, ideas start to spin around, and next thing you know, they're policy. And I think that's, it's great that we have the opportunity to talk about this and the platform. Uh, you know, I'm wearing basketball shorts, not pants, because uh, that's what I do on Zoom. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm grateful for that. But Rob, I really want to thank you for coming on today. Uh, your story is heavy, you know, and I think that if there are people listening right now trying to figure out, you know, like, would my loved one ever be able to get well and stay sober? I mean, the fact that you are going through the things that you go through and that you've had to face adversity that most people couldn't even imagine in, in sobriety, that not only have you been able to maintain it, but you've been able to, been able to turn it into a tool uh, to reinforce and strengthen your own sobriety and your recovery. And like, to me, there couldn't be a more inspiring story uh, you know, of somebody facing these terrible things that happen to us that we don't necessarily have control over and then not letting it own you and take you back to a dark place where you then lose everything that you've built. And so if there are people listening that have a loved one that's struggling and you're wondering whether or not they'll be able to survive the loss of a job or, you know, a breakup or an argument or that you bring something up to your loved one in recovery might make them mad and get them to use, people do get well. They are resilient. And in recovery, you can find so much strength in your support system, in your recovery process, that eventually you should be able to face anything and use it as a tool. And I'm just, I'm grateful as a person in recovery to have you on and hear that story. So thank you so much. It's really an incredible story. I'm so proud of you. Thank you guys for having me. Like if it wasn't for Maureen, you know, checking in on me and stuff like that, you know, people forget that like, I wasn't born with a needle in my neck. You know what I mean? Like I, I didn't know how to draw up heroin. I learned that shit. Someone yeah. taught me how to do that. And like, when I got clean, I didn't know how to recover. I didn't know what recovery was. 
people like you guys taught me how to do it. And, um, you know, I'm grateful to be here today. I'm grateful to be able to help somebody and, you know, kind of live, you know, the best quality of life that I feel is, you know, acceptable for me. And that's really it. Thank you guys for having me. Well, I got to know this incredible person, so I'm glad I reached out to you. You're amazing. I love you. Love Wonderful you connections we all get to make in recovery. Beautiful thing, the relationships. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Collateral Damage. Um, if you enjoy this episode and you want to hear future episodes, uh, go on to our Facebook page, Collateral Damage. Uh, we post all of our episodes there. You can like them. You can comment. You can share. Please do any of those three if you enjoy the episode. If you don't like us, send us an email and tell us what you don't like, and we'll fix it. It's that easy. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram, at uh, CDPod. Uh, you can find us on YouTube. So if you Google Collateral Damage YouTube, we will come up. You'll get to watch these. So if you're listening to it and you'd like to see what we all look like while we're talking, go to YouTube, leave a comment, subscribe, hit notifications. Every time we put out a new episode, your phone will ding. And then there will be a little red dot that you will feel obligated to attend to. And that will be us. And we will be there. And then you'll get to hear us. Uh, and so with all of that, we really appreciate you listening and tune in for another episode in the future. We'd like to thank Sunrise Detox for sponsoring this episode of Collateral Damage.